Praise God. Uh, thankful to be gathered together here this morning. For those of you that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors and elders here with Christ's Covenant Fellowship. We want to thank you for being here. If it's your first time visiting with us, praise God that you have chosen to worship with us here today. I pray that you are blessed by this time. Listen, let's get right into it. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 7, the gospel according to John chapter 7. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. So what I want to do is just briefly read these verses, then I will pray and ask God to bless us through the teaching of his word this morning. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. John chapter 7, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord, and it reads, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to fellowship together, to open the word together. Lord, I have an incredible task before me, one that I am not truly qualified to accomplish. Lord, to speak on your behalf, to preach your word before your people. Father, I pray that your spirit would dwell within me and would work through me to glorify yourself this morning. Lord, as I speak, I pray that eyes and hearts and ears would be open to receive the truth of Jesus Christ and that you would be exalted through this time of teaching. And this would all be to your glory for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the last time we were in the gospel according to John, we came to the conclusion of John chapter 6. If you recall, John 6 is where Jesus performs this incredible feat of feeding the 5,000. And then after that, this crowd of people, albeit for superficial reasons, they begin pursuing the Lord Jesus. And Jesus engages in this conversation with them, this bread of life discourse where he presents himself as the ultimate and eternal provision that satisfies the human soul. And then from there, these disciples begin to withdraw from Jesus because of the things that he says. He draws a distinct dividing line between, between true and false disciples. You see, the statements that Jesus makes are very offensive. They're very 
troubling and unsettling. And so when we come to the close of John chapter 6, many of those followers, those who would identify themselves as disciples, have chosen to abandon Jesus. And so here is Jesus left with the 12 men that he had chosen, including Judas Iscariot, the one who would eventually betray the Lord Jesus. Now that brings us to our text for this morning when we begin in John chapter 7. And this marks a bit of a transition in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus as the next several chapters are really marked by a rising hostility that Jesus is facing from the Jews. Now, as we look at the text before us this morning, we're going to see an incredible commitment of Christ, not to the plans of men and humanity, but a commitment to achieving the redemptive plan that God instituted before the beginning of time. What we'll see is a steadfast commitment of Jesus to accomplish the will of the Father on His divine timeline. So I've titled this message for this morning, The Divine Timing of Jesus, because I believe this text teaches us the steadfastness of Christ. See, Christ demonstrates his obedience in all things to accomplishing this divinely appointed timetable. See, the Lord Jesus does nothing casually. He doesn't do anything flippantly. He doesn't just fly by the seat of his pants. And he certainly does nothing out of compulsion or in response to human coercion. See, there's a purpose for everything the Lord Jesus did. And we'll see that from this text today. In fact, we'll see that there's a great purpose even in the things that Jesus refused to do. And while we will learn this great theological reality, we'll be able to take that away from these verses. There are many other things that we're going to be able to glean from reading this text this morning, see this particular passage, although it is a narrative, there is an encounter with Jesus, a conversation with Jesus and his brothers that we certainly must give our attention to. So for the purpose of teaching this text and hopefully making it clear and accurate and easy for us to understand, I've broke it into two sections. So here will be our two headings or our two sections if you're taking notes. Section number one will be the unbelief of his brothers. The unbelief of his brothers, and we'll see that in verses 1 through 10. And then the second section will be, and this is simpler, simple, a shorter section, but this will be the division over Christ. The division over Christ, and we'll see that in verses 11 through 13. Now, as we walk through this text together. Again, we see the commitment of Christ to this divine timeline, but we're also going to be confronted with this unbelief of his brothers, and we'll even see this great division. And my hope is that we're encouraged through the teaching of this text this morning, that if you are a believer in here, you're encouraged because you see the commitment of your Savior to accomplishing God's plan of salvation. That if you're an unbeliever in here, as you're confronted with this division of this crowd, that everyone in here would wrestle with the implications of what Jesus says about himself. And my hope is that every person in here would render some sort of verdict. You would make some decision about Jesus, what he claims about himself, that you would decide. And ultimately, faith, belief in Jesus 
What we believe about him is gonna determine where you reside for eternity. That's why this matters. That's why it's important for us to have this conversation. So we'll begin our time first by looking at the unbelief of Jesus' brothers. See, chapter 7 opens by establishing the setting for this particular narrative. Verse 1 reads, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, let's stop right there for a moment because I think this leads to an essential point for us to pick up on here, something that's crucial for the body of Christ. Now, the text says after this. This is obviously pointing to uh, the events in chapter 6. If you recall, in chapter 6, Jesus was at the Passover Well, the Passover feast feast takes place in April. What we'll learn as we continue reading in this portion of Scripture is that now the Feast of Booze is at hand, or what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles, and that takes place in October. So what that is telling us is that there's a period of about six months has taken place, has gone by since this encounter at the end of John chapter 6. So John doesn't give us all of the details. See, John's purpose for writing or recording this gospel wasn't to give an exhaustive account of everything that Jesus said and did. He wrote things strategically so that you would believe he is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. So what was Jesus doing for those six or seven months? How did he spend that time between the Passover feast and now this period at the Feast of Tabernacles? So while John doesn't give us that, we can read the other gospel writers and we can fill in the gaps accordingly. We can figure out what Jesus was doing with his time. And from reading the other gospel writers, we find out that Jesus spent the majority of that six months teaching his disciples. He spent time with the 12. Now, you may be sitting here this morning and say, well, Pastor Brandon, what does that have to do with us? This seems like a bit of an aside. Why is this important to the life of the church? See, the fact that Jesus spent more time with those 12 men than he did these large crowds is significant. It shows us that Jesus' primary focus was on discipleship, not drawing in these large crowds of people. You see, the Lord committed the majority of his time to teaching these 12 men. He wanted to equip them in order for them to go out into the world and make disciples, that then go into the world and make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, and so on and so forth. Brothers and sisters, this is how the Christian church was birthed in the first century. This is how the gospel has been preserved for all of these years. If we are to be faithful to Christ, discipleship must be our priority as a church as well. You see, Matt Combs did a wonderful job last week as he taught on the importance of small groups, and he laid out for us how discipleship happens through that platform. So there's a lot I could say about this, but I don't feel the need to belabor that point. Now, I will say, however, that God has clearly called us to make disciples, to go into the world, to fulfill the Great Commission, not to pursue massive crowds of people. Listen, as a church... Our success is not based on our finances. It's not based on how great our worship team is. It's not even based on how great our preaching is. The measure of our success, how well are we discipling our people? What is the depth of our discipleship? See, we can apply this corporately, but personally as well. Listen, is it, it isn't realistic either to think that we can disciple every single person. 
right? Not even Jesus spent time with everybody, right? This is something that I have to battle as well in my own life. I cannot disciple every single person that I know. You ever looked at your list of Facebook friends? They don't know all them people. And you're certainly not discipling all of them, right? It's just not a realistic expectation. What we should do is look at our lives, the people that God has placed in our lives in close proximity to us, and pick a few of those people and really invest in them. Maybe it's some brothers and sisters in this congregation. Maybe it's some people at your work, right? One or two people you work with to my college students. Maybe it's a brother or sister on your dorm. Right? You don't need to pursue this massive following of people or try to disciple every single person that you come across. Simply be faithful with the few. Be faithful with the few. Jesus had 12 dudes that he rolled around with, and he gave himself to them. That's what discipleship looks like. I thought that was an important point for us as a church. So as we continue in verse 1, it tells us Jesus' motives for remaining here in Galilee. The text says he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, as I alluded to earlier, chapter 7 marks a bit of a transition because you're seeing this rising tension, this rising hostility towards Jesus. You see, when John uses the term Jews, he's referring to the Jewish religious leaders, so the Pharisees and the scribes who stood in opposition to Christ. And you see, for these men who were opposing Christ, it was a done deal. It was a settled conclusion in their mind that Jesus now must die. The text says they were seeking to kill him, and that is the reason he remained in Galilee. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But verse 2 again tells us that it is the feast of booze was at hand. Now, according to Jewish historian Josephus, this was the most popular of the three major Jewish feasts. So you had... Passover, you had Pentecost, and you have the Feast of Booze, or what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this feast was instituted by God. It was given to the Jews to commemorate their exodus, right, as they're taken out of slavery, out of Egypt, and the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness. And what they did is they constructed these temporary dwelling places, made out of branches, sticks, leaves, whatever. They made these temporary shelters. So at, these, at this feast, at the Feast of Booze, they would again reconstruct these temporary dwelling spots. And from studying on this text, it says even a lot of them would go out on the roofs of their homes and build these little like lean-tos, I guess you could call them. And that is how they remembered or commemorated the Lord bringing them out of Egypt through the wilderness to the Promised Land. Something else significant about the Feast of Booze is at that feast, there was always a lamp lighting ritual, and there was some sort of water drawing ceremony. Now, that's going to be significant because this is setting the scene for the next couple of chapters that Jesus is at this feast. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus is going to make reference to water and to light. Now, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I want to step on Pastor Tyler's toes because I think he's going to be preaching those texts, so I'll just leave that there. But it's appropriate for establishing our setting. Now, again, because this was one of the most popular of the three major Jewish celebrations, there would have been an enormous number of people heading up for this event. And verse 3 tells us that Jesus' brothers come to him with a request. Because this feast was, uh, or at this feast, it was expected that all Jewish men were supposed to attend. So Jesus' brothers obviously expect him to be going up to take part in this. Now, 
before we move on, who were who Jesus' brothers? Maybe if you're sitting here this morning, you have some questions. Well, who are Jesus' brothers? Well, this is referring to the other sons, the sons of Mary and Joseph. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 gives us a list of their names. Jesus' brothers were Joseph, Simon, James, and Judas. Now, of course, they were Jesus' half-brothers. They were indeed the sons of Mary, like Jesus was, but Jesus was actually the son of God, not the son of Joseph. Because of the virgin birth, I think we all understand that, right? You guys tracking with me? Okay, praise God, praise God. So these were Jesus' brothers. So what do they do? They come to Jesus and they have a request for him, an expectation. Let's look at verses three and four. And it reads, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. So his brothers come to him and they're like, hey man, why don't you go up to the feast where everybody can see you? Right? You're, if you're the Messiah and you're the Savior and you're doing all these things, man, what a wonderful platform this would be. What a great opportunity to expose yourself to the world for everyone to see all these miraculous things you do. I mean, what a great opportunity to build your brand. Why not go up to the feast and take advantage of this platform? Now, on its face, this may seem like well-placed enthusiasm, but make no mistake about it. Jesus' brothers are not zealous for his divine glory to be revealed to the world. They're not anxious for him to receive the praise that he is due as the Son of God. In fact, this couldn't be further from the truth. It seems that Jesus' brothers have ulterior motives here, and we can determine that by a simple reading of the text. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. So after that, after they say all of these things, after they encourage him to go up to the feast, to be seen by the world, to reveal your divine, miraculous, uh, all the miracles you do, to show yourself to the world, after all of that, John then drops in this statement that says, for not even his brothers believed in him. That seems odd. But I think that's something John wants us to wrestle with. But I want you to look at the language here. The word for is significant for us understanding what's happening here. The word for is significant. So they say all of these things and then John writes for or because not even his brothers believed in him. So that's the qualifier. They said all of those things and wanted him to go up to the feast at that time in that way because they did not believe in him. Again, this may seem strange. It may seem a little odd, like what is happening here? So what I want to do is briefly examine the unbelief of Jesus's brothers against the unbelief of the crowd in the previous chapter in John chapter Six and even contrast it with the unbelief of the Jewish leaders. You see, the unbelief of the Jews is really easy to spot. That's really easy to see, mainly because of their hostility and their anger towards Jesus. See, they have a desire to kill the Savior. That's, it's easy to spot or to recognize that type of unbelief. That's not hard to see. 
Matter of fact, this really began back in John chapter 5, verse 16, when Jesus heals the man and it's on the Sabbath and the Jews are very angry. If you remember John chapter 5, verse 16, it says this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, that is very easy to recognize. That's unbelief that we all can see. It's very apparent. Now, if we look back at the crowd in John chapter 6, their unbelief becomes very apparent as well because they grumble at the words of Jesus Christ, even so much so that they turn and abandon him. They no longer follow him. Jesus even says in John 6, 64, there are some of you here who do not believe. Again, very easy to spot and to recognize that type of unbelief. Look at, let's look at the unbelief of Jesus' brothers. So you have to remember that his brothers most likely had seen some of Jesus' miracles. They were at least present at the wedding in Cana back in John chapter 2 when he turns water to wine. So they were at least present for that. And see, here they are pressing Jesus, lobbying for him to go up to this feast to show himself to the world. But what's their motivation behind this? And why does John label it as unbelief? You see, Jesus' brothers, at least at this time, did not believe in him. Now, praise God, they would come to be believers, right? James, his brother, would be the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's the author of the uh, New Testament letter that bears his name. Then Jesus' brother Judas wrote the letter of Jude in the New Testament. So they would eventually become believers in Jesus Christ. But at this time, they were not. They didn't believe in him as Lord and Savior and Messiah. In fact, early on in Jesus' ministry, his whole family questioned his motives. They questioned what he was doing. If you go to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says this. And this is after Jesus has gathered his disciples. He's teaching. He's beginning his ministry. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So even Jesus's closest family members didn't at least initially believe in him. You see, this reminds us even of John chapter 1, where it says he came to his own and his own received him not. See, this is unbelief. It may look different, but it is unbelief all the same. See, although the unbelief of his brothers is, is different, right, on its face, it is still classified as unbelief. And I think that's what John wants us to see here. So the question would become, well, if they don't believe in him, then why on earth would they tell him to go up to the feast and perform these miracles? What's their motivation behind this request? And I'm going to give you four quick theories. I think they're all plausible. They all could be at work. I'm not even going to like break them down. I'm just going to list them very quickly. You decide. The text doesn't tell us. So we're only making assumptions. We're having to assume on their motives. So here, four quick theories of their motivations. Number one, they wanted to witness his miracles firsthand to determine whether or not they were actually genuine. Number two, their motivation was to gain some sort of secondhand glory or some sort of recognition for themselves. I mean, if Jesus is your brother, I mean, that's an opportunity for me to build my brand. 
right? If Michael Jordan's my dad, I'm telling everybody, right? My actual dad is here, and he's better than Michael Jordan, so love you, Pop. So there's an opportunity for them to gain glory for themselves. Number three, they only believe Jesus to be some sort of political Messiah. So they're saying, hey, go up to Jerusalem in the feast with all the people. Here's an opportunity for you to show yourself to the world, right, to gain some steam, for your campaign to gain some traction. So maybe there's this shallow belief as Jesus of some sort of political Savior. And number four, if the people particularly the Jewish religious leaders, accepted Jesus and believed in him up at the feast, then they would also believe in Jesus as the one God had sent or as this Savior come from the Lord. So those are all possibilities at work. Again, I say they're all very plausible. Regardless of the motivation behind their request, John clearly assigns it as unbelief. He says they do not believe in him. Listen, if you look at verse 4, there's one little word there, and it's the word if. You see, that word if is important because it sows seeds of doubt and unbelief. So they're saying, if you do all of these things, if you're who we believe you to, or you claim to be, if you're this political Messiah, if you do all these wonderful divine miracles, then go up and show it to the world. And that is unbelief. Remember, the purpose of John writing this gospel account is so that you would believe. Listen, as we work through the gospel according to John, there's a reason it's deemed the gospel of belief. John is going to continuously point back to false belief versus genuine belief. He wants us to clearly be able to distinguish between the two. And that's what he's doing for us here. So whether it's an aversion to the words of Christ like the crowd in John 6, or it's open hostility towards Jesus because of his miraculous signs like you see with the Jews in John 5 and moving forward, or if it's a desire to see the miraculous signs of Jesus on display. In the end, it is all the same. It is unbelief. So why is this important to us? Why is this important to us? Because this type of unbelief that's demonstrated by Jesus' brothers can easily be hidden within any of us. See, it can take up residence within my heart and my soul, and I'm totally oblivious to it. See, we must take time to examine ourselves, to check our own hearts daily. I don't think there's any person in this room who has an aversion to the miracles of Christ. I think all of us would love the miraculous things that Jesus does. I don't think we're like the Pharisees to where we would be outright, outraged or offended by those things. But am I like his brothers? Do I only have a desire to see Jesus perform miracles because it will benefit me in some way? Or do I want Jesus to do something miraculous? Do I pray and ask the Lord to do something miraculous in my life to prove himself to me? Does that hide in here somewhere? Brothers and sisters, I am certainly not above the implications of this text. We're all susceptible to this type of self-centered motivation See, we must 
prayerfully and faithfully guard ourselves against this type of unbelief. Church, by the grace of God, keep watch over your own heart and soul against this type of unbelief. See, Jesus' brothers have spoken to him in this way, and it's because they don't believe. Let's now turn our attention to the response of our Lord and Savior. How would Christ respond to their request? Let's look at verses 6 through 9. And so Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. You see, what happens is his brothers attempt to force his hand. They apply pressure, hoping to leverage Jesus in some way. But Jesus isn't swayed or persuaded by that. In fact, the Lord Jesus shows us that he's not moved by the desires of men. He's not pressured by human motivations. Rather, he is solely committed to accomplishing the will of the Father according to his divine timetable. You see, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. This is very similar, if you recall, back in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. Jesus uh, is at this wedding with his family. They run out of wine. His mother comes to him and says, hey, we've run out of wine. Jesus says, well, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's very similar language. You see, when Jesus refers to his time or his hour, he is referencing the crucifixion. See, this is the beauty of Christ and his commitment and his steadfastness. See, all, all that Jesus did was intentional with the cross in view. You see, even as he's ministering to the masses, as he's teaching in the synagogues, yes, even as he's healing the sick and doing the miraculous, he's consistently kept in mind the Father's plan of redemption. See, throughout his life and ministry, he was committed to keeping this divine appointment on Calvary, marching to the cross, laying down his life. He even references it to his disciples over and over again, never forgetting the purpose for which he had come. See, his brothers couldn't persuade him from that. Jesus could not be swayed by unbelief to prove himself in some way to satisfy mankind. See, Jesus couldn't turn aside left or right from his divine appointment. He couldn't deviate from the Father's timing. See, God had planned all of this from the beginning, before the foundations of the world, to send his son, born of a virgin, to live, to die, to rise again for the sake of the redeemed. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures teach us this reality, but it also teaches us it's all by God's perfect and appropriate timing. See, God's timing is perfect. And we're reminded of that when we read through the scriptures just a couple I'm going to give you, for example, Romans 5, 6. says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
1 Timothy 6, verses 14 and 15, as Paul writes to young Timothy and says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he, which is God, will display when? At the proper time. It's all by God's timing. His timing is perfect. Listen, Christ going up to the feast at the direction of his brothers, facing the hostility and persecution of the Jews would have compromised the Father's plan and timing. Jesus would not and could not go to the cross any earlier than God had deemed appropriate. See, Jesus was crucified on Calvary, not a second too soon and not a moment too late either. And praise God that his plan of salvation is by his power in his time. See, if it were up to me, I would only mess it up. I can't even appropriately plan and, and time uh, for the things that I do in this life. I can't even get that right. So something, the magnitude of the plan of salvation for hum humanity, I certainly couldn't have planned that. If it were up to me, I would have said, Jesus, why didn't you send, or God, why didn't you send Jesus, your son, before you sent him? Right? You've got the Israelites and you, got all, you had the fall and you, you promised it at the fall with the serpent crusher. God, why didn't you send Jesus before then? See, that's why it's not up to me. Praise God. But the Lord's timing is perfect. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of difficulty and uncertainty, the Lord has a plan. I hope this encourages you to trust in God's timing. I hope you take comfort in knowing that God is working all things according to his sovereign will. And all that comes to be has been ordained to happen when God wants it, the way God wants it. And praise God for that wonderful plan. See, Jesus committed to the timing of God the Father. He tells his brother, listen, my time is not yet come. But he says to them, to the contrary, your time is always here. Now, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean by this? See, because his brothers did not believe in him, they had no reference for God's divine schedule. They didn't understand Christ's plan of salvation or his commitment to the will of the Father. Therefore, any time would be suitable for them. They could say, yeah, let's go up now. Jesus, go up to the feast now. Show yourself now. See, they didn't have a reference for his divine timing. Any time would do for them. But Jesus continues here in verse 7, and he even says to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. See, unlike Jesus, his brothers could go up to the feast openly any time they wanted. And they wouldn't face any animosity. They wouldn't face any persecution. And Jesus tells us why right here. He says the world cannot hate you. You see, the world didn't hate Jesus' brothers because prior to believing in him, they were of the world. Of course, the world is going to love its own. Jesus even points to that reality right later in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this as he's talking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, the world couldn't hate Jesus' brothers because they were of the world. 
Jesus says the world hates him because he testified against it. See here, Christ reminds us of something that I think we often either overlook or we just misunderstand. You see, the world loves its own. It loves those who are like-minded, under the sway of the evil one, operating under the world's sinful systems. The world loves those type of people because we're just like the world. People like that are so alike. But see, if you fall in line, of course the world is going to accept you. But Jesus tells us that the world hates him because he testified against it that its works are evil. Listen, brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when you face opposition from the world because of your allegiance to Christ and his word. The Bible tells us we should expect that. Listen, every man in his natural condition is opposed to the gospel message. Listen, rejection of Christ and his gospel is the only response of an unregenerated man. It's the only response of someone who hasn't received the benefits of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So naturally, as believers in Jesus Christ, if we preach this gospel message, if we go forth sharing the words of Christ, of course the world is going to hate us. It's offensive if you tell someone they're living in sin. If you actually say what this book says, people are going to be offended. And that's okay. See, Jesus said the world hates him and it'll hate us too. Again, I think a lot of Christians forget this reality. that The world hates Christ. It's opposed to the gospel. See, herein lies the great problem. I think so many of us as believers, we want to be liked. We want to be affirmed. We want to be accepted. So what do we do? We attempt to make the word of God more palatable. We round off the sharp edges of the gospel. We have preachers who are watering down their sermons every Sunday, even refusing to preach the whole counsel of God so they don't offend anyone. Now, to be fair, we don't need to look for opportunities or go out of our way to be offensive to people. The gospel and the words of Christ are offensive as it is. But listen, here's the point, brothers and sisters. If we are truly preaching the gospel, if we are truly proclaiming what God has said, do not be surprised when you face animosity. If the world mistreats you, praise God. They're only treating me as they treated my Lord. I count that as a benefit. I count that as a grace. See, the Lord's time had not yet come, so... Jesus refused to go up to this feast. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 quickly. Jesus says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus tells them he's not going to the feast. But then if we look at verse 10, something miraculous or incredible happens. It tells us that Jesus goes to the feast. Now, this is an interesting verse that has generated a lot of conversations, a lot of controversy, a lot of debate. See, people who are skeptics that want to attack the character and divinity of Jesus, even want to attack the reliability of the Bible, they'll point to a text like this and say, see, Jesus lied. Jesus lied. He said he wasn't going, and then he goes anyway. See, Jesus is a liar, can't be God. Nah, 
when they say that dog won't hunt, that doesn't work. See, we know because of Jesus' divine nature, it's not in his ability to lie. Jesus isn't lying here. He's not backpedaling on what he's just said. When he said, I'm not going to the feast, he means I'm not going up in the way that you want or when you want. Jesus is saying, I'm not going up now as you guys have requested me to go. I'm not going up in the time or in the method or the mode that you want me to go. So this teaches us another wonderful reality about Christ and his divine commitment to, the God, to God the Father and his plan. See, this text, we learn that the Lord has a particular timeline on which he operates, but he also has a particular way in which he operates. And again, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but look at verse 14. And this is our text for next time we're in John. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. That's important. See, Jesus doesn't go up to perform miracles to receive the applause and affirmation of men. He goes up privately and begins teaching. Totally different than what his brothers had requested. Not in the time or not in the way that they desired. See, Jesus is totally contrary of what people thought he should be. They believed him to be this political messiah, this social reformer, one to free them from the tyranny of Rome. But see, when you read your Bible, Jesus says things and he does things in an intentional way that are often contrary to the way that we would have done things. So he doesn't respond to their requests by doing things their way. He does things his way for his glory to the praise of God the Father. So he does indeed go up to Judea knowing that these Jews were seeking his life, fully aware of his brother's ulterior motives. But he does so according to the will of the Father in the way that he designed for his glory. Now, finally, as we prepare to finish our time, we'll look at the last couple of verses, verses 11 through 13, and I want us to see the attitude of this crowd, the division over Jesus among these people. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. And it says, The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. You see, verse 11 tells us that the Jews were seeking Jesus at the feast. And as we've already established, when John uses the term Jews, he's pointing to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders who hated Jesus. But then in verse 12, he uses the term people. So this would be the common people that were up at the feast. And they're saying, where is he? And there's a lot of muttering about him. See, there's a lot of talk about Jesus and depending on who you talk to, you're going to get varying opinions about who is this man from Nazareth. So some people said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. The reality is that both views fall desperately incomplete of ascribing to Jesus the eternal glory that he is actually due. See, to even call Jesus a good, good man is not enough. That falls infinitely short of describing Jesus. But see, unfortunately, there are many in our day who believe that Jesus is nothing more than a great man of morality. 
one who teaches us many things about how we are to live. However, they deny his divinity and his lordship. Listen, friends, it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus as a great moral teacher. And Jesus makes that plain in John chapter 8. As he's talking to the Jews, he says, it says, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. John 8, 24 says this, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In verse 25, it says, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. See, Jesus makes some shocking and outrageous claims about himself. But they clearly heard what he said. They saw his divine power. They heard his words. In fact, that was one of the things that aroused their anger, that Jesus was making himself equal to God, claiming to have come down from heaven to hold the keys to eternal life, all of these things. See, listen, you you and I don't have the ability to dictate what is true about Christ. We have to deal with what he has said about himself. See, and every man must wrestle with that reality. It's not enough to just say Jesus is a good man. That's not saving faith. And Jesus doesn't leave it up to you to determine that. There's a quote that comes from C.S. Lewis, and I think probably the majority of people in here, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard this quote. But I think it's apropos for what we're discussing right now. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes as it pertains to Christ. He says, quote, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. You see, to call Christ a good man isn't enough. But to say he's leading people astray is essentially calling him a false prophet or deceiver, and that's not accurate either. You see, the miraculous signs that Jesus performed were self-authenticating. False teachers, false prophets could not do the miraculous things that Jesus did. However, as we look at this text, there's clearly division amongst the people over the identity of Christ. See, just as there's division amongst that crowd there, there is certainly division over Christ in our day. There are those who believe Christ is just a fictional character contained within the pages of a fictional story that we call the Bible. There are even those who believe that Christ did live and die, that he was a real person who lived and walked the earth but they deny his divinity. They won't say that he's God. Then there are those who actually acknowledge the life of Christ and they'll even acknowledge his divine nature. But they've constructed their own beliefs about Christ. Oh, he's just a standard for us to strive to. He's just a good example. We can do the things Jesus does. We just need to work harder to be like him. See, there are people who love this idea of Jesus, but it's a Jesus of their own creation. 
There always has been and there always will be division over Christ. In fact, Jesus says, that's why I came. Luke chapter 12, if you recall, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to this crowd. What does he tell them? He says, I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division, right? To turn sons against fathers and mothers against daughters. Right? There's going to be division over Jesus. Either you believe him to be Lord and Savior or you don't. We're not all going to agree on that. Not saying we as in the church, because if you're part of the church, I hope we agree on that. But what I'm saying is in the world, there will be division over Jesus. It will continue to be this way. Let's look quickly at verse 13 as we end our time. It says, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So there are these people in this crowd that are divided over Jesus, and there's differing opinions over Christ. But for fear of persecution, none of the people would speak openly about him. We see the reality playing out that these religious leaders have a certain level of influence. And they're threatening people. They've already told them, hey, if you talk, to, talk about Jesus or try to ascribe to him that he is Lord and Savior, hey, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. And we see that elsewhere. We see that in John 9 with the blind man, right? They go to his, the blind man's parents. How did he, is this your son? Yep, he's our son. How did he get his sight? We don't know, right? And it says they were scared to confess Jesus because they didn't want to get put out of the synagogue. Or then in John chapter 12, same thing. It says, nevertheless, many of the authorities even believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. So listen, there were even people in this crowd, in the nation of Israel, that believed, as Jesus, uh, believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they were scared to speak openly about him because they didn't want to lose their position. They didn't want to face persecution or animosity from anybody, so they wouldn't speak about him publicly. You see, just as the Pharisees used their position to intimidate anyone from openly proclaiming Christ, listen, the world has certainly created a culture that wants to silence Christians. They don't want us speaking openly about Jesus because it's offensive, because it's narrow, because it's not inclusive. The world doesn't want us, brothers and sisters, openly speaking about Christ. So listen, I want to just challenge you as we prepare to finish. I want you to look at your own life. I want you to think about your own walk with Christ, your faith. Are you willing to openly speak about Jesus on your job, with your neighbors, with your family members? No fear of persecution. No fear of what it may cost. And at times it will cost dearly. Listen, the world doesn't need more messages of self-help and affirmation. What they need is the gospel of Jesus, that he came to redeem, to give sight to the blind, to raise the dead, to free the captive. That's the message that the world needs. We can't be silent about this. Brothers and sisters, we must speak openly about Christ Jesus for the sake of the lost. We need godly men and women who are unashamed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, as we close our time, we praise God for this eternal plan of salvation. 
You know, as we look at this text, we're reminded that God does indeed have a plan and that Jesus was committed to that. That he came, he lived, he died, he rose again at just the perfect time to save sinful humanity, never deviating from the mission, never turning aside. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who is infinitely and eternally capable and faithful to save. Praise God that we are beneficiaries of his grace and this plan of redemption. Listen, there are a lot of opinions about Jesus Christ. If you're in here this morning and you say, well, I, Jesus sounds like a great guy, but I don't know if I could call him Lord. I don't know if I could surrender my life to him. I don't know if I could look to him in faith. I want to challenge you on that. I would simply say, don't walk out of this building the same way you walked in. You have an opportunity even today to look to Jesus Christ in faith right now, right now. But again, the bottom line is that every man must make a decision. Every man and woman must decide who is Jesus. Don't leave the same way you came in here today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you even for this opportunity to fellowship together as we're reminded of the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that it's challenged us this morning, but I pray that we're also encouraged to see the commitment of our Savior to march to the cross to accomplish the plan of salvation for your people at just the right time. Lord, even as we're reminded of the division over Christ, that there will always be people who have differing opinions, Lord, let us be people who stand firmly on the truth of your word, who pronounce Christ as King, as Lord and Savior, and to share that gospel message, the good news, the free gift of salvation and eternal life given through Jesus Christ. Let us proclaim that to the world boldly, faithfully, consistently for your glory. Lord, would you be honored in us today? Would you be glorified through the rest of the time we have in this service? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.